We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm joined by listener favorite Christopher Bedford, senior editor at The Federalist, also of Right Forge. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for coming on today. It's great to be here. You got to give the people what they want. And the people have spoken and, and they want Bedford. <laughs> That, that's that's very nice of them. I, I don't believe you, though. I feel like there's going to be a hurtful comment coming. <laughs> you know, you called you, you called my bluff, so now I can't make the hurtful comment because it looks too... Uh, <laughs> you've undermined me. Okay, so we're going to talk about something I really didn't think we would have to talk about, but we do. And it is the Joe Rogan um, conflict that has exploded at Spotify. And I say I didn't think we would have to talk about it because I honestly just thought people knew that, of course, this was going to happen at some point and that we would... It, I mean, it is just the most obvious predictable thing in the world that that Spotify that Spotify would um, have an issue ultimately with Joe Rogan that it would be over the COVID thing I mean if it wasn't COVID it would be something else um, it's a very progressive company its employees are very progressive its employees are constantly complaining about all sorts of stuff they didn't want to take Joe Rogan on in the first place at least the vocal minority of uh, progressive employees of Spotify and here we are it was uh, you have this this list of uh, doctors that are now upset. You have uh, all of these Brene Brown and Neil Young and Joni Mitchell who don't really have a ton of skin in the game anymore being upset with Spotify. Um, it just Chris, I just didn't want. I didn't really want to talk about it because it's all so obvious and predictable. And I think you know maybe in our circles it's obvious and predictable, but maybe not elsewhere. We knew it was coming. There's no one really who's uncancelable. I mean, they went, they canceled the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, there's no one right now who they won't go after. And it's kind of wild. I mean, I, 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 sometimes I get a little jealous, a little envious. Like I wish that I had the power to just roam the countryside, just destroying the lives of anyone who disagreed with me. <laughs> like let, like not leave no stone unturned. Just, it doesn't matter. Like you could kick everyone off of Fox. You can kick, and you can have like no dissenting views on PBS, CNN, CBS, uh, MSNBC, the New York Times, the Washington Post. But you're just going. There's a podcast out there that disagrees with you, so it must be crushed. Uh, it's it's pretty. Uh, sounds like a great hobby. I could get into it, but I, I don't have that power yet. It's so stupid. And like, it's the same thing. It's the same conversation we've been having about college campuses for more than a decade now, um, even though some people are sort of late to that conversation. It's the same thing about sunlight being the best disinfectant, free expression being the best solution to bad ideas, letting them sort of duke it out in the marketplace of ideas. All of this is true. But I think if there's, again, that's why like we talk about this every week in a million different contexts because it happens all of the time. Um, and, and the Rogan thing is just like obviously predictable. This was clearly going to happen. It happens with Rogan all the time. There are a little But bit- it's more than that, I think. It's an encapsulation of their overreach. Like Joe Rogan is the physical embodiment of their overreach. I remember, you know, when I was, when I was at the Daily Caller for years, we would occasionally report on Joe Rogan. He was very popular. He was getting more and more popular. The amount of times that he would say something that made right-wingers cheer, it's like, I don't know, like once every few months, because he wasn't political. He was just an interesting guy who likes to drink and, and smoke and have interesting people on and have long conversations. At least he never seemed overtly political to me. I'm not a total expert, so you could correct me if I'm wrong. The, the left attacking him so viciously over 
just just simple dissent. Like not even he's not out there saying the stuff that we talk about in the Federalist Radio Hour. He's not out there writing national review columns or whatever. He's he's just doing his own thing, and they're attacking him so viciously. And as they have, I've noticed him getting more and more conservative in his leanings and more openly saying things that I would align with the American conservatism. And with that, I think is a lot of are a lot of his viewers. The amount of folks I've talked to, whether it's my brother and his friends, or just folks around town who. We see articles about it all the time. It maybe weren't political before COVID, but this reaction and the attacks on free speech, the attacks on Joe Rogan, the attacks on whether or not you're quarantining, the attacks on kids' schools, they're politicizing every single thing. And, you know, the left has always made everything extremely political. You couldn't even have, like, women's restrooms. that would, To them, that was a political issue. But uh, I, think it's, I think it could potentially make a lot more people who would have sat in the sidelines politically motivated against them. Yeah. So, and I should be clear that I'm not like upset that we have to talk about this because there are a lot of interesting things to talk about. There's, there's no question because as Chris just laid out, he is Joe Rogan to the extent he is political is sort of openly flirting with Bernie um, and with Tulsi Gabbard and uh, like the Andrew Yangs of the world. He's, he tends to be pretty, uh, left of center, if not sort of far left on certain issues. But he, Joe Rogan released this uh, quick Instagram video on Spotify that was, I, that I actually found very interesting because it was, um, he, he was saying, listen, I'm just curious. I'm just a curious person that likes to have conversations with people. The podcast became popular because I was just having conversations with people and it sort of became this juggernaut is how he refers to it. And that's absolutely true. Ben and I wrote, uh, Dominic and I wrote this series called The New Contract around the 2020 election um, talking about exactly that was a good series yeah like talking exactly about how it will rogan was gaining in popularity because he was meeting this market demand um and he's very compelling but he's meeting this market demand that uh, the the legacy media is is utterly failing at um and so i want to throw this question to you with that sort of framing about the the business side of this it's not good business for spotify it would be terrible business for spotify to part ways with joe rogan um and that sort of seems to be why they cling to him right there's no sort of ideological commitment to free expression on spotify's part it's a commitment to to money and and to making money don't you think yeah i mean it was really fun to see neil young get smacked down so hard uh the other day by Spotify when they tried to, when Neil Young tried to say, you can either choose Joe Rogan or my music, like easy decision. <laughs> but that was not a, just like you said, that was not an ideological decision by Spotify. That was hard dollars. I mean, how many subscribers do they lose by not having Neil Young's music? I mean, how many, how many people listen to Neil Young use Spotify? Right. My dad listens to Neil Young, but it's on a vinyl uh, or, or, or CDs even. The, but I think they were going, they're going to be pushed to a market decision. I mean, we saw over the weekend just a little flutter, flutter in their stock market uh, evaluation. And we started, started Spotify has already showed that they're beginning to crack on this issue, that maybe they could walk back some things. They could apologize. You know, maybe we would have done things differently. Um, and it's wild. I, I wonder who the people in these boardrooms are who make these decisions. Like, if your job is to to help your company be guided through a political problem. I assume you would have to be a student of at least current events, like what other companies have been doing. And I can't think of a single company or person who was spared because they apologized uh, to the left, to, to left-wing censors and left-wing mobs. The right. thing is like Spotify either has to 
go through this the entire way or they're just going to they're going to have a very very hard spring. Yeah, no, that's exactly true and it's Rogan is smart enough because he's not he doesn't have the like corporate media brainworms um to understand <laughs> exactly what his case study proves, right? Which is that you're not saving yourself if you prostrate yourself to the the censors at any given place or the ones outside of it that are, you know, demanding things happen. Um so that's sort of that's great. That's that's the good part. Um but it is amazing the extent to which people that were countercultural you know, revolutionaries like your Neil Mitchells and your Joan, your Neil Young and your Joni Mitchells um, would take this stance. But Chris, I want to ask this to you because you have uh, interesting opinions on this coming from a sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Musically heterodox, musically, uh, what's the word? Rebellious background uh, that, that you have. It is, as you always say, and you've talked about this for years, amazing to see the conformity um, out of the purported anti-conformists be on such a high level all the time, really. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I grew up a punk rocker, and I'm no longer like a teenage violent sociopath, but I still do see punk rockers all the time just walk by me from California to Boston, and I think, man, just to be 17 again and like hit that guy in the back of the head. Like the So many of them just need to get pops. It's unreal. The... Uh, <laughs> Punk rock used to, I mean, it never actually was. There was always a strand of just super, you have to be this kind of politics or that kind of politics. You had guys like Crass out there in England who were putting, and Zounds who were putting out just really left-wing music, and they were not getting along with the, the, the guys who were more just chaotic and kind of crazy, whether it's the Sex Pistols or the Exploited or whoever. You had the Clash out there with their stupid Rock Against Racism tours and everything. But in general... Um, Punk rock was was in a lot of hippie music and a lot of the other things were countercultural to to a reason. Uh, and nowadays, I see people walking by with mohawks wearing masks outside mm -hmm. uh, and Biden and rainbow buttons and Biden buttons and and I'm just thinking like, wow, guys. I mean, none of your issues, none of your issues are countercultural anymore. All of you, you have the commanding heights of all the newspapers, the commanding heights of, of the U.S. House of Representatives, the Senate, the presidency. Uh, all the major networks, your parents probably agree with you. Like, what exactly are you rebelling against? There's, there's nothing to it. And then there are actually folks out there who I don't agree with remotely all the time who are countercultural, who, who, do, who do push back, who are rebellious. I would say um, Glenn Greenwald's an example. Obviously, yeah. Joe Rogan's a big example. Matt uh, so, Yeah, Matt Taibbi. People who just say, hold on a second, this is this is BS. I mean, and there are a lot of other guys who pretend to do it, like Bill Maher. Now, he pretends. He walks the line every mm -hmm. few years and says something that's not completely insane and, and conservatives cheer. But the countercultural culture in America is so the, the traditional version of it is so dead. And I actually do think that there's a a rising counterculture that's more conservative leaning that you see among the youth. You, we do we deal with it in National Journalism Center and Young Americans for Freedom, but it's kind of cool and rebellious, really, to be a conservative or a or outspoken Christian, and I, I like that. That's a good sign. But I do worry that this level of vitriol that's being, this level of control and suppression that's being directed towards anyone who even steps out of line remotely, even if they're not political, is going to create potentially create a countercultural that's that's really toxic and awful. 
I mean, if you can, if you're 16, 17, 18, and in, in those years of life where you're extremely prone to radicalism and glorious ideas, and, and for and drawn to forbidden ideas, and uh, just haven't formed yourself as a man yet, the I, and you get told every day that you're evil to be a white person, that you have to do this, you have to do that. I, I worry that there's going to be a, a really toxic kind of counterculture in the youth that could push back on this. You see it with those with those clowns. Uh, what do they call themselves? Groipers. <laughs> yeah. You see it with stuff like that. It's like ah, as uh, they're drive, they're going to drive these this this level of suppression that's being pushed by the left. I think it's going to drive a lot of good people crazy. Yeah. Yep. And I think you know you've seen sort of flashes of that in Europe over at least the last uh, decade, um, and it does create. It, there are Nazis it, in Europe. <laughs> I, huh. I hate i regret to inform you. Uh, but yeah so there's that is a problem and it's actually not one that i've ever heard you ever talk about before because you usually don't uh like to acknowledge the the sort of uh, potential pitfalls of reactionary uh reflexes because uh, well, i'm a reactionary yes, exactly. <laughs> completely through and through but uh and i and i i, I want to positive all with i i don't think that the alt-right or all these different groups are like remotely as powerful as the new york times would like to pretend they are that all these stupid left-wing journalists think they are but um i just worry i'm i'm, I'm not worried that these like kind of reactionary movements are, are really as much a threat to the country as much as they're a threat to to the people to those to those individuals to their not only to their souls but also to their futures because i mean when i was wilding out and being a punk rock anarchist jerk professional jerk basically as a young man there were no cell phone videos yeah, <laughs> yeah. there was no my, my messages went on uh, myspace which i got deleted years ago I, there was no uh and that was only when i was 18 the the amount of access to the internet these kids now have to share their ridiculous reactionary viewpoints when they're 16 uh or videotape them it, it, it's more dangerous to them in the in the future and they know that I spoke to two different groups of students last week um, and the backlash to technology was palpable when I was talking to both of them um, and I was talking to them about technology and it's amazing. This is the highest tech generation and it's in many ways the most anti-tech generation, but because it's, been so, it's been so integrated into their lives, they don't really have an escape hatch um, and they don't know what it was like to not exist with all of these social media platforms and smartphones. So that is, that is very much a thing and maybe the best place to sort of drive this conversation is to um, a question of liberalism. And this is a debate that, Chris, you uh, are engaged in on the right, um, but it shouldn't just be on the right. But the Joe Rogan example is a good one, right? Like for, for all of the um, irritation I have at, at having to sort of like litigate these very obvious and predictable problems, this one is uh, useful to the extent that we, we can see, you know, there's, there's potential, I think, for liberalism to be the antidote uh, rather than illiberalism or illiberalism, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense in this context, but a sort of moral, uh, yeah. Chris, how would you describe, um, a lot of those, those sort of, con th those conversations you have? Are you talking about classical liberalism yeah, or American yeah. leftism? No, not leftism, classical liberalism. Yep. Yes. Yeah, yeah, liberalism. Yeah, yeah, the, the the liberal the liberal classically liberal idea is that there should be separations in different spheres of our society, whether it's your your church worship and your family life and your business and your government and state control. The state should not that, that they should not interfere with each other in, in means of controlling. Particularly that the state should not interfere with those different aspects of your life. 
And the illiberals would say that that's not true, that there should be a strong state or a strong something that, that, that has access to all aspects of your life. And the, the illiberals are, are seriously winning on the left. It's so obvious, just like you said, it's kind of painful to talk about at some points because we're just yeah. seeing it every single day. Mm-hmm. I remember the critique of Donald Trump from a lot of voters who were less, uh, less anxious for the fray, if you will, yeah. that he was going out and they said, well, he seems like he's fighting on everything. Why is he fighting? He's fighting the NFL. He's fighting the girls in the gyms. He's fighting Disney. He's fighting uh, the Chinese. He's fighting with NATO. He's fighting with uh, Nancy Pelosi. He's fighting with BLM. It's like, well, because every single aspect of our society has been turned and weaponized and politicized by illiberal leftists into a front for politics. You can't even... You can't even work at a tech company in a lot of these places and have dissenting viewpoints that you share privately without being fired because you make the culture feel unsafe by having that different thought in your head than what they, than what your colleagues would like. You, you can't even, I mean, we had that whole thing with the gym bathrooms and, and safe spaces. They call it, it's a, in order to have a safe space, you need to let mentally ill adult men into little girls' bathrooms. That's safe, apparently. The NFL, uh, which, you know. It's also uh, feminism. Not yeah, only is right? it safe, but it is feminism. Two years ago, uh, every American conservative was rightfully looking up, or a year and a half ago, saying, to heck with the NFL. They're disgracing our flag. They don't care about me. They, they hate my politics. They're openly saying this. Then you fast forward like nine months, and every conservative was like, did you see that playoff game? How awesome was that? Just shut up. I think we turned it off. You see, there's not a, the military, uh, the Pentagon, there's not a single aspect of our lives, our churches, which were shut down during COVID, uh, or those churches, you know, you walk by in Nashville, I walk by like a Methodist church, a Presbyterian church, another one, I mean, all of them empty, of course, yep. but rainbow flags out front, BLM stuff out front, fine. The Everything is being politicized and it's driving people absolutely nuts. And if we could get a return to uh, liberals, I'm sure that'd be great. I don't really see it coming. Well, so this is, and I'm really glad you ended on that point because this is exactly the question I'm asking in that I, I always feel like it's a race against the clock. Um, you know, can classical liberalism save classical liberalism before a liberalism uh, destroys classical liberalism? And that sounds maybe too abstract or academic, but the Joe Rogan is the sort of pinnacle of, of classical liberalism in a sense. And I mean that both culturally and uh, culturally and economically, right? So if you have the, the economics of classical liberalism, the market demand can sweep somebody um, who is speaking to the culture to sort of financial success and cultural power. And that's what we see with Joe Rogan. And that's not to say, so like to the extent that I know, Joe Rogan isn't a practicing Christian. Um, he's not a uh, somebody who's has that sort of set of values that a lot of us on the right would hope our culture would promote um, and would be sort of uh, centered around. Uh, and yet he is at a time when our culture has become so secular um, and so anti-human in so many ways, just the sort of humanism and the willingness to have the conversations about it that Joe Rogan demonstrates on his show makes him massively successful. And so then you have this this question arise um, as to whether you can be sort of 
can classical liberalism, Chris, I'll, I'll send this question to you, rescue classical liberalism with the, uh, with the, my own personal sort of caveat here that I think classical liberalism in the way that it's sort of evolved in the United States has, it's evolved into secularism. And a lot of people would say that was an inevitable consequence of sort of the way our country in particular as a, as an experiment in classical liberalism was set up. There was no way to avoid becoming postmodern and secular. Um, but at the same time, it does seem as though if you look back at, at where the country started, of course it's popular um, and or, or not popular. Of course it's possible to to have, I think, a classical liberal system without a uh, without a, having just necessarily a, a secular system. But you can sort of flesh that out, flesh out what your response is to that, um, and where you see whether you see Joe Rogan as a as a case study in that. I don't. I don't think that classical liberalism in its current form can save us because I think that we 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 are lacking in the necessary ingredients for a free society to be to be healthy and functioning. I think that if you brought back Madison and Hamilton and Adams and Franklin and Washington and whoever else and said Jefferson and said, "Hey, we're, we're, take a look at the society. What would you do?" And they they, they would they would say, all right, do you have Christianity and morality? Do you have shared heroes? Do you have shared values? Do you have shared history? Do you have a shared idea of the future? Do you have strong borders? Do you have law and order? Do you have, I mean, and we'd say no, to, we have a, a growing and, and functioning middle class. And we said no to all of those things. I'd say, well, then you guys get a monarch. <laughs> you, you don't get this republic. <laughs> this is it. Uh, sorry, gang. They, and they, it was a tenuous experiment back then uh, when they did it. And yes. there was a huge amount of infighting between the Whigs and the Republicans and, uh, and Jefferson's uh, Democratic Republicans. The but, but huge amount. that of was within a smaller spectrum of, even that was within a, a more narrow spectrum of what constituted like secularism versus yeah. constituted. They, were, they disagreed on how to move forward, but they, they all agreed on the same past yeah. generally. And, and, and they weren't secular. I mean, there's like a modern myth that the founding fathers were secular exactly. because, you know, Ben Franklin was kind of a deist and, and Jefferson was, yeah. was not so Christian himself. But they, the founding fathers were extremely Christian <laughs> through and through. The, uh, this society lacks the necessary ingredients. I was just talking to a friend about this last night. Um, I'm down in Nashville right now. It's probably why my mic is not as perfect as it ought to be per <laughs> usual. Uh, we were just having a beer last night talking about how good it felt to be out of Washington, D.C., but at the same time thinking how bad Washington, D.C. has gotten. I mean, somebody just got executed in Georgetown, shot in the head yesterday with a single shot. Yep. That, I remember that happening before. It happened when I was working down there in like 2006 or something, but the response by the police at that point was to barricade Trinidad and to set up a citywide curfew and things like that. But we see our we see our cities coming apart right now. We see Oregon, uh, Portland. We see Seattle. We see Austin. We see New York. We see Washington D.C., San Francisco, and the list goes on. Uh, Minneapolis, which is like a hellscape when you visit uh, St. Louis, just coming apart. And we'd always talked about in podcasts like ours and in the Federal Pages and in the Academy that America was in a state of decline, a moral decline, and cultural decline. And now. It, it does feel weird to actually look out your window and see it mm -hmm. because I didn't see it uh, two years ago. It was, I felt it. I knew it in my mind. I saw it in the empty pews and saw it in the, when you, when you drive uh, either into the inner city or out into 
across the country and the gutted factories and the, just the incredibly obese population on welfare and drugs. You could, you could see it sometimes, but now it's really coming in for our metropolises too. Not just in, it's not just in West Virginia and places that were gutted. It's not just in Michigan. Now it's in our glittering cities. And we were just thinking, you know, it was only a matter of time before, um, before a body politic that has such bad cancer starts to show physical symptoms of it. And I think that's what we're going through right now. Yeah, Sorry no, to be so downer on a Joe Rogan story podcast. Well, no, but I mean, it is profoundly depressing, but it's profoundly de depressing in the same way that some major story is every single week. Um, and to get back to this question of why the Neil Youngs and Joni Mitchells have sort of evolved, which I do think speaks to the the exact sort of failures, not failures, but like fundamental flaws in high tech classical liberalism, right? Can classical liberalism exist in a high tech postmodern world? And I say high tech postmodern because postmodernism, I really genuinely believe is a consequence of technology. Um, and so to the extent that question is, is relevant here, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell um, were the rebels of their day, or allegedly the rebels of their day, of course. Um, and they Neil Young was the high-pitched guy who hung out with the rebels. <laughs> well, he wrote about those sorts of, I mean, obviously this is a theme in his music. Um, and he was just, yeah. You're right. Well, so it reminds me very much of what happened when uh, some college Republicans at Berkeley wanted to host Ann Coulter. This was a few years ago, and this is the, we just keep repeating the same things over and over again. But uh, Berkeley obviously is the home of the free speech movement, um, and Joan Baez had given a concert there. Um, a very famous concert there in support of the free speech movement in the 60s. And everyone on the left at the time was freaking out and saying Ann Coulter is a, Ann Coulter is a danger to the safety of Berkeley students. We cannot stand for this. She must not be platformed here at Berkeley. Um, and Bla Berkeley became this this ground, this, this like once again, became this uh, you know battleground for free speech. And Joan Baez put out a statement, and I give her so much credit for this, saying, let Ann Coulter speak. And it seems like you would think Neil Young and Joni Mitchell um, would be able to come to that same conclusion, but they can't. I mean, they just, they really can't. They can't, people on the left that sort of see themselves as rebels now believe that they're the rebels who have to police the other rebels. Um, and it just seems to speak to how weirdly off their self-perception is and how distrustful we are of each other. Um, because, of course, these people, they, you know, if you're on the left, you see the world as you know, so dangerous that you need the government, which, of course, cannot be dangerous at all uh, to police and to encroach on people's civil liberties to keep us um, you know, safe in these very mundane, normal ways from other people's irresponsibility. I mean, I think you just hit the nail on the head talking about the free speech movement of the 60s, which was a, which is a very funny name. I mean, we uh, most people who didn't live through the 60s learn about them through like the Glory Day books that somehow managed to paint Woodstock as if it wasn't like a filthy, disgusting experience. <laughs> the, um, they, they've got these such uh, pink, rose-colored glasses on for the 60s. The free speech movement was a book-burning movement that wanted to crush political dissension on campus, attacked conservatives, and bombed military laboratories at college, college laboratories. Like, the free speech movement was awful and anti-speech. And that, those are the, the rebels and the hippies that have, are now in charge of our societies, that are leading our colleges, that are the speakers of the House of Representatives, that are, that are uh, th this is the new leadership of the left. And it's a dangerous place because you had a, 
you had you had at least when when they when they were kids and they were attacking police officers and rioting in the streets, the the mayors, the Democratic and Republican mayors and governors of these states and cities, still had an idea about law and order. It didn't matter. Partisanship did not extend that far. I mean, Mayor Daley of Chicago was willing to put down a rioting mob trying to attack the DNC with tear gas and cavalry charges. Uh, they were pretty serious. We don't have that now. Instead, we have those hippies, those anti-speech, anti-free speech hippies now in charge of our entire country. And and there's a really, it's no longer fun. It's no longer like, they're not even pretending with the with the free love stuff anymore. They're, they're really open about it. A friend of mine was, you know, I don't know why she still does this to herself, but she was listening to the BBC the other day and she sent me the podcast. And they said, well, Joe Rogan, of course, has a right to free speech, but there is no right to free speech when it comes to safety and scientific medicine. So what are you talking yep. about? Yep. That's completely... Completely insane. I understand that they're British. They don't like have because they don't have the same bill of rights that we do. The enumerated rights instead of their common law. So like, oh, and the host also cited the fire in a crowded theater thing, which made me realize it's a sad oh, thing that these left wingers. Yeah, it's just a false and stupid example uh, that these left wingers, these people like that that host, these people like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez have had. They've really suffered for it, but they've had the privilege of going their entire lives with their stupid opinions never being challenged once. I'm gonna like, say- no one's ever said that never even happened. No one said that's not what the Supreme Court said. No one ever said, what are you talking about? The First Amendment's absolute. These, and there's, there's a whole generation now. I know the right wing was like cheering this week that I guess uh, like 51% of college students don't want to put you in a camp for having Republican ideas. Woo! But that's still like a really bad idea. I think it was saying they should allow people to speak, but like yeah. we shouldn't cheer that. Like, don't worry, guys. Thirty-five percent of young people don't think you should go to a re-education camp. Like, well, this is a this is a dangerous uh, place we're in right now with the e-liberalism, and it's and there are a lot of good liberals out there who I know people who still kind of hold on to these old-fashioned democratic and liberal ideas of uh, that aren't e-liberal, and they're and they're but they don't seem to realize the water around them has been boiling for so long because. People, the censors keep on choosing. Well, first it's Alex Jones, then it's Donald Trump, then it's Net Zero Hedge and Gateway Pundit. And now they're going for Joe Rogan. Oh, maybe, hopefully, a few folks might wake up and say, hold on a second, this is, this is ridiculous. Well, yeah, au contraire. I actually think it's worth celebrating when those numbers go down. So even if they're high, if they're going down, I think that's good. Um, and I think there was a slice of, so I think our generation millennials were the real tip of the spear when it came to mainstreaming these anti-speech, anti-expression ideas. And I actually think there's already, we're already seeing a little bit of a backlash from Gen Z who loves Barstool, loves Joe Rogan. May, they even love some of the, you know, the leftist podcasters, of course, too. But there's this very, like, there's this this noise um, that they're kind of tuned into on, on social media and that they enjoy. Um, but this is, this is, I think, a, a good place to come to a wrap things and sort of make them full circle in that exactly what you are saying here, this, the reason that the Neil Youngs and the Joni Mitchells have now landed where they are is that they were always fighting to destroy the foundation of society, but not to replace it with anything except for this moral nihilism, right? This, if you're, if you're not rooted um, in something that is true and good and beautiful and emphasis on true, then you're going to end up with this ideological incoherence. And that's sort of where they are right now in 2022. And that explains how you can go from where they were in the 1960s to right now 
now um, in, in 2022. And, and Chris, this is to the extent that there may be some optimism we can end on. You are, I did not, this is not promotional at all. I didn't tell Chris I was going here. It's just naturally where the conversation flowed, but you work for a company called RightForge. And the this is what I mean when I say classical, is classical liberalism the antidote to classical liberalism? Um, that just even on an economic, if, if our economy can still meet consumer demand and if the monopolies at Amazon and Google and these web hosting companies do not win, um, there will always be a place for people to listen to Joe Rogan on a competitive mainstream platform. And that sort of still is where we, I think we are still there, but the experiment is being run right now. Yeah, the, uh, thank you. I'll, I'll t- t- talk about it for a second. The, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton Sheen has a great podcast or, or t- taping of his show that people should check out. Uh, you can find it online about how, He's talking about this in the 50s, but there's this growing movement among the young people to tear down, and it's extremely easy to tear down, and it's extremely difficult to, to build up. And he was warning about what was coming and what we've been seeing. So right forward, we're trying to build up. Uh, over the last couple of years, we've recognized finally with institutions like Hillsdale and Patrick Henry and Liberty and others that we need, uh, and then they're doing some really great work down in Florida as well, that we need our own universities. But it goes well beyond that. We need our own banks. Banks won't do business with people who gun manufacturers or American energy producers. Uh, we need our own financial institutions. We need our own uh, social media platforms. We need our own. We need to develop our, an alternative economy because we're not welcomed in a, a large part of the economy. And it's not just Republicans or, or conservatives. It's 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 dissenting scientists. It's dissenting uh, uh, doctors like Dr. Scott Atlas. It's Christians. You know, people who would just generally like to go about the masterpiece cake shop kind of folks we need our own things and uh and the big tech and the things that really run our country and and reach out and touch every single aspect of our lives are, are determined to stop that so right forwards we're trying to build up and build the internet servers to power that kind of economy we are building internet servers to power that kind of economy so that people can be interconnected because you know i live in dc right now i'm in nashville you're in dc we have we have friends all over in these liberal cities austin portland wherever uh, but they need access to this economy. We need to do it online. It can't just be small and local. And that's good. And another another point of optimism, I, uh, my priest, Monsignor Pope, was talking about this on Sunday. He said, don't be disheartened. Don't, don't leave the winning team. It may not seem right now that Christians are on the winning team when we're under attack in every single aspect of our culture, when we're under attack at our borders, for under attack in the bedrooms. Every single thing seems to be under attack right now. But, you know, he says, we have the end of the book. Mm. Like, we know how this ends. We have the Bible. We know where this goes. We are the winning team. Don't get disheartened. Don't leave. Countries do rise and fall. Civilizations rise and fall. Cultures rise and fall. But one thing that's constant throughout the whole thing, uh, the last 2,000 years, has been Christ. And we know how that's going to go. So uh, buckle up. It's going to be a tough ride. Keep on building up and keep on lifting your eyes up. And like you said, fighting for the true, the great, and the, and the beautiful. But uh, fortunately, we do win in the end. Mm-hmm. No, but you see this in fashion, right? So postmodernism and fashion, there's nothing beautiful about it. And there's there's nothing true about what they claim to be beautiful um, that comes of it. And there's there's nothing particularly good about the uh, the the androgyny and the, the sort of intentionally grungy androgyny um, that it's self-absorbed. Yeah. And you see it in architecture um, and it's, it's sort of oh clear. Oh, my gosh. To the eye. It's awful. 
people are I, I do really believe that the reason Joe Rogan gets a lot of listeners is uh, related to that, that people are actually really starting to I don't think all of us can put it into words yet. It's sort of fuzzy, but I think people are, are coming around to that. And uh, we talk about this all the time. But obviously, I think the Republican Party and the conservative movement needs to uh, be the landing pad for those people and needs to be the vehicle um, for for their uh, Republican Party needs to be deserving of them. Yeah, and, and it's not. Um, and anyway, not yet, but we're working on it. All right. Uh, so we'll see uh, what what happens to Joe Rogan. I do uh, sort of. I mean, whatever is whatever happens, we know that there are still little whiny millennials at these major big tech companies um, that are supposed to support creativity and, and art uh, like Spotify that do not, and they will continue, of course, to clash with the actual uh, proponents of free expression. Christopher Bedford, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. <laughs>